0: Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Livestream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. Hodor. Hodor. Buddy, I know you're looking for something to do down there beneath the cave, but I want to make sure you know... (laughs) Hoder. Binge Mode contains adult content. If you're okay with what you see on Game of Thrones, you'll be okay with Binge Mode. Hodor? And now, Binge Mode. I did what I thought was right, and I got murdered for it. And now I'm back. <laughs> Why? I don't know.
1: Maybe we'll never know. What does it matter? You go on. You fight for as long as you can. You clean up as much of the shit as you can. I
0: don't know how to do that. I thought I did, but I failed. Good, now go fail again. Hello! Yeah! And welcome to Binge Mode. Welcome. (laughs) I'm Mallory Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today, Now that he's finished wishing me good fortune in the wars to come, it's Ringer Staff Writer, your maester, Jason Concepcion. And now it begins and never ends. (laughs) (laughs) Just like binge mode. We are rewatching all 60 episodes of Game of Thrones. We are deep diving one at a time and we are getting close. Oh my God. Spoiler warning. We've lost our minds. Spoiler warning, part two. We will be going deep on details from the show and the books, this episode and beyond. So watch your back, especially if Hal and Reed is close. No. Because it's time to break down season six, episode three, Oathbreaker. Jason. Yeah. John's watch maybe ended, but ours isn't yet. (laughs) Not quite. While we're still ticking, let's offer a brief refresher on what actually happened in this third installment by taking a quick trip down our very own King's Road. Up at Castle Black, Jon Snow is risen!
1: It's pretty good. Mel wants to know what lies beyond the domain of living and raises the possibility that Jon is the prince that was promised. Ooh. Talk about that later. Tormund tells Jon that he can't be a god because you, you're pecker. I saw your pecker. You, my, your pecker's much too small. John hangs the traitors. Bells for Ollie Cam? No? Okay. (laughs) Then he names Ed. Ed! Fucking Ed. Ed! Ed. Acting (laughs) Lord Commander, and he takes off his black cloak, and he's like, peace.
0: At the Tower of Joy! (laughs) In the last days of Robert's Rebellion! (laughs) Real talk. Yeah! Literally like the most excited I've ever been for anything in my life <laughs> when this scene began. It's pretty I, fucking good. I screamed. It was pretty good. I I cried. What happened here? Well, the three-eyed raven. Show and brand the events outside the Tower of Joy. Again, Ned Stark Secrecy yeah. on display. Is that the sort of the mornings music we hear? <laughs>
1: Featuring (laughs) Hal Reed and Don, the legendary son of House Dane. Don looked all right.
0: John Don. Don. Don don I wanted more from Don.
1: I mean, there's a little rising sun on the pommel.
0: We need more than that. Need a little more than that. Yeah. As for what happens inside the Tower of Joy, guys, we will have to wait. But Bran witnesses the battle on the ground. Calls for his father. Ned appears to hear him. Bran's learning some truths, and his lessons with the Three Eyed Raven continue. Much more. On the Tower of Joy later on.
1: Sailing south to the Reach, Sam tells Gilly that, hey, we're going to the Citadel, and also women aren't allowed in the Citadel, so I'm going to drop you off at Hornhill, my daddy's house. Over in Vistothrak, Danny is having her job interview with the crones of the Dosh Colleen, and she learns that the, all the Kalisars will soon be gathering at Vistothrak to decide on their. Next season's rating targets. And in Marine, Varys discovers that Yunkai, Astapor, and Volantis are funding the Sons of the Harpy.
0: In King's Landing, Kybern. Not Now you're <laughs> great. Co ops. Varys' network of little birds. The price for their services: a regular lump sum of candied plums. Mm. Just to be clear, we mean that literally, not not metaphorically. <laughs> yeah. You never know with these people. Yeah. Cersei shares with Jamie mm. her plan to use Sir Gregor as her champion for a trial by combat once the faith levels charges. Kevin with an A presiding over a small council meeting featuring Mace, Lady Olenna, <laughs> Pysel. What, what a fucking dream team. What a
1: dream team. <laughs> brain Trust.
0: Cersei and Jamie and Franken Mountain arrive. Cersei's aggrieved at her exclusion and they note there's precedent for Jaime to join the group, uh-huh. Lord Commander of the King's Guard. King Tommen goes to see the High Sparrow, orders the old shoeless preacher to let Cersei see Marcella's resting place. And The High Sparrow jiu poor Tommen, beginning the process of recruiting him to the faith and, spoiler alert, turning him against his family.
1: In the House of Black and White in Bravos. Arya, plot twist, is now Daredevil. (laughs) She stands toe-to-toe with the waif despite having no eyes. Jack and hands are a cup of well water. She trusts in him and drinks and regains her sight. Then she lies and says, yeah, I still want to become no one. Totally. Up in Winterfell, small John Umber, that piece of traitorous trash, brings Rickon and Osha to Ramsay. The post-stark north begins to take shape. Bells! Bells Shaggy, Shaggy
0: Dog! Shaggy Dog! Give us those bells, Shaggy. No. Why? <laughs> Absolutely brutal. Why do they keep killing the dire wolves? I do, it's it's so bad. upsetting. Protect ghosts. Protect him. Mal.
1: Yeah? If someone is planning on making our losses, their gains, I want to hear about it. Okay. And got, you. got you. And that gets us to this episode's big idea, so let's cut right to the corporate by sticking it with the pointy end. The defining theme of this episode is taking a leap of Faith. <music> Preparation and planning, which like schemes and plots are actually the same thing, but let's roll with this, are important, crucial even. But those require time. What happens when you have to make a life and death or death to life decision? And you have to make it right now. You trust your gut, you close your eyes and you jump. Let's talk about Davos, Sandra, and John. The fact of John's resurrection in and of itself is a product of Several leaps of faith. There's Davos deciding instinctively on almost zero information that John was a hero and that it was possible for him to live again. This led to his leap of trust with Melisandre, who he hates, as we've said numerous times, but who was the only person he believed who could help. And Then there's Ed and the Night's Watch brothers throwing their lots in with Davos, who they barely know, and Melisandre, who is a notorious weirdo recently seen burning a man alive in the yard at Castle Black.
0: Notorious weirdo is definitely the nicest thing anyone has ever I mean, said about
1: Mel. notorious weirdo. Davos, talking to John, says, you were dead. Now you're not. That's completely fucking mad, seems to me. And I can only imagine how it seems to you. John, I did what I thought was right and I got murdered for it. And now I'm back. Why? Davos says, I don't know. Maybe we'll never know. What does it matter? You go on. You fight for as long as you can. You clean up as much shit as you can. And just, John, despite very recently, you know, spanning the- Vast distance between life and death. Can't yet take that leap to continue fighting. I don't know how to do that. He says, I thought I did, but I failed. And Davos, good. Now go fail again. I wonder where Shireen got her relentless optimism from, guys, because it certainly was not Stannis.
0: What about the fetus jar collector? <laughs> it was definitely not the fetus no. jar lady either. <laughs> that exchange between Davos and John yeah. is agonizing. It's, I, want a, I need a Davos in my life. Me too. And- None of us have been, as far as I know, reborn, but, right. you know, brought, <laughs> just stabbed, betrayed by Mad Axe, and then right. brought back to life. But everyone has experienced confusion and doubt. Yes, absolutely. And that is all over John's face. It's yeah. informing every word that he speaks. Yeah. He literally doesn't understand what has happened to him. Right. Imagine trying to come to terms yeah. with that experience. And it's painful to watch. It's painful.
1: And then there's Melisandre, and she in many ways is like a junkie off the junk right now. She's been addicted for I don't know how many centuries, really, to the feeling of being a vessel for the will of God. And this addiction manifests in her faith, her belief in the Lord of Light's cause and her ability to divine his intentions. And she's been shattered by these recent reversals that have shown those feelings, those visions that she thought she was getting directly from God to be false. But bringing Snow back already has her ready to make that leap for the Lord of Light again, Mel says. Afterwards, after they stabbed you, after you died, what it's like, it's no need to. We got it. We got it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We
1: got it. Where did you go? What did you see? John says. Nothing. There was nothing at all. And that doesn't matter to Mel. The Lord of Light, for whatever reason, is back in her corner. Melisandre, the Lord lets you come back for a reason. Stannis was not the prince that was promised, but someone has to be. Mm. And it's chilling to watch John dead as of eight hours previously, reborn, walking out in the yard. The men are awed, disturbed, probably more than a little afraid, you know, Ed. Says, your eyes are still brown. Is that, is that still you in there? Uh, referencing the fact that he doesn't have the ghostly blue eyes of a white or a white walker. And John says, I think so. Uh, he's not sure. I mean, he's been through a lot in the last 24 hours and he's still not sure what is going on and makes a joke that he would not be capable of making not too many seasons before. He, <laughs> says, your, he says, hold off on burning my body for now. And then another great moment, Ed says, that's funny. You sure that's still you in there? <laughs> Love that. Great moment. The hum- But the humor is, there's something worth uh, identifying here. I think so. He doesn't know. He's not sure who he is anymore. He's not sure if he's entirely himself. And remember what Beric said, every time I come back, I'm a bit less. Pieces of you get chipped away. How much of John has been chipped away? The people who just witnessed this miracle are ready to take a leap of faith and follow John because it's not a leap. They've seen him come back it's free life. Right. They know he's important. But is John himself ready? I think the next few episodes will show, actually, no, he's not ready. Right.
0: Thorn, Ollie, the conspirators, you Ooh. know, before we snap their necks and say our farewells, let's get inside their heads a little bit. The traitors made a leap of faith, too, when they tried to take John out. But their leap of faith was a rational one. You know, death, after all, is generally a more permanent state of affairs, which— a, you know, half dozen or so stab wounds to the the torso area are nearly every case enough to bring about the end that you are seeking. This turned out, of course, to be wrong. But their faith in thinking that that brought them to the gallows that put them in this spot still remains, at least in Thorne and Ollie's cases, unshaken, which is pretty interesting. You know, Thorne, in his last moments before death, John gives all of them a chance to say something. And Thorne says, I had a choice, Lord Commander. Betray you or betray the Night's Watch. You brought an army of wildlings into our lands, an army of murderers and raiders. If I had to do it all over, knowing where I'd end up, I pray I'd make the right choice again. And John says, I'm sure you would, Sir Alasir. Thorne says, I fought, I lost, now I rest. But you, Lord Snow, You'll be fighting their battles forever. There's a chilling moment between John and Bone Marsh when Marsh says, you shouldn't be alive. It's not right. And John says, neither was killing me. And there's something so honest and pure and agonizing about that. And think about John's journey. You know, he has taken numerous leaps of faith when it's come to the watch. Joining in the first place was a leap of faith. Asking Benjamin. Take me with you when you go to the wall. Staying there when Ned was taken prisoner and then staying again when Ned was killed. Think of the number of times in season one he had to be brought back, you know, when he's named a steward. Right. And he's doubting whether he's ever going to actually be able to live up to his potential there, which is part of the reason that he went in the first place. You know, killing the half hand, infiltrating Mance's camp, leaving Egra behind even though he loved her. Putting Mance out of his misery, even though Stannis had ordered a different course of events, aligning with Tormund, going to Hardhome. Every decision John has made has been a leap of faith, but that's over now. He is not prepared to take another one. And after John executes the traitors, Ed says, "We should burn the bodies." And John replies, "You should." And then he takes off his cloak and he's in these lush furs. Hands it to Ed. What do you want me to do with this? Ed says, "Wear it." Burn it whatever you want. You have Castle Black. My watch is ended. He's done. He's not prepared to take another leap of faith, at least not in this moment, and at least not for this institution.
1: Down in King's Landing, King Tommen and the High Sparrow are having a conversation. And Tommen, it's been a rough kingship for Tommen. Tommen desires nothing more in this world than for someone who knows what the fuck is going on and what is happening and what to do about all of it to come and just make these decisions for him. In this way, Tommen's style of ruling is essentially a leap of faith. Faith that his mother's intentions are for the best. Faith that things will work out. Faith that he won't run the fucking realm aground. This makes him particularly vulnerable to the High Sparrow, whose entire spiel is basically an appeal to faith in the Seven, as all-knowing, ever-just arbiters of absolute right and wrong. Tommen says to the High Sparrow, I'm the king. High Sparrow says, yeah, you are. And Tommen... Says, what does that mean to you? The High Spider says, it means a great deal to me. The crown and the faith are the twin pillars of the world. You know who told me that? Your mother.
0: What a perfect reminder that Cersei is always arming her enemies with the ammo that they need to take her and her loved Uh ones down. 100%. And now Tommen
1: comes back at him saying, oh, you mean my mother who you you put in prison, who you called unclean, who you walked naked through the streets like a whore? And this provides a perfect opening for the High Spider to lay out his worldview. And it's a worldview that would appeal to Tommen. How do you think the mother above, and the mother, of course, is one of the seven deities that make up the seven. How do you think the mother above first came to us? How did men and women first come to feel the mother's presence, he says? It was through their own mothers. There's a great deal of falsehood in Cersei. You know that, and Tommen does. But when she speaks of you, the mother's love outshines it all. Her love for you is more real than anything else in this world because it doesn't come from this world. But you know that. You felt it. You've seen her when she talks to you.
0: What is more powerful and dangerous than a person who can use the truth it's, to get to bend somebody to his or her will.
1: Everyone has been speaking a different language than The High Sparrow the whole time he's been on the show, and that's why he is in this position. Tommen is as I just mentioned, uniquely primed for this approach because of his close relationship with Cersei and his deep need to believe that there's some guiding force that's in control of events. The High spire continues, when your mother made her walk of atonement, she did it to get back to you. And Tommen is kind of crumbling now, and they they go back and forth a little bit about um, the gods and what the gods want. And then Thomas sits next to the high sparrow and the high sparrow says, if we're to be just and good, then we accept it, all of us, even kings. A true leader avails himself of the wisest counsel he can, and no one is wiser than the gods.
0: Sounds like someone we know, well, at least so. the first part of it.
1: Thomas says, my grandfather once said something similar, except for the part about the gods, the high sparrow says. The gods worked through him, whether he knew it or not, as they work through your mother. There's so much good in all of us. The best we can do is help each other. Bring it out. And this is exactly what Tommen needs to hear.
0: Cersei is not usually talking to people she's trying to defeat or recruit about goodness and the idea of goodness and bringing (laughs) it out. She's often doing quite the opposite. And, you know, in this episode, the leaps of faith that she has been taking to this point are backfiring. They have always backfired. That is her story. Act rashly, act hastily, suffer the consequences. And now, finally, she is arriving, at least temporarily, at a place where she doesn't want to take chances anymore. She says to Kybern Kyron, <laughs> Not even named. It's an incredible Kybern episode. That's yeah, a great Kybern. It really is. Don't stop at the city, she says. I want little birds in Dorne and Highgarden in the north. If someone is planning on making our losses their gains, I want to hear it, she adds. I want to know who they are. I want to know where they are. She's trying to be a little more methodical, gathering some intel, not always act based on emotion and instinct. Cersei also knows that she's a trial coming and she's crafting a game plan. This is yeah. extremely uncharacteristic for her, of course. Spoiler alert, none of this will work out, but she's trying something new. Jamie, chatting about Franken Mountain here, you know, wants to know. Does he understand what we're saying? There's that great like twitch yeah. moment. Where Gregor's like, oh, I hear you, motherfucker. Jamie also wants to know, why didn't Sir Gregor go kill the High Sparrow? And Cersei says, well, there are too many faith militants. Sir Gregor can't face them all, she says. And he won't have to. He'll only have to face one. She means trial by combat. Right. Of course. Jamie says, that's one trial of combat I look forward to watching. Jamie's sort of back in bad guy mode at this point, which is entertaining television, sort of. But is. People who I think have gotten very invested in him as a character. It's a little bit distressing to see him slip back into yeah. these ways. And Pycelle, meanwhile, is ranting like a loon about how Cersei took a leap of faith with Kyburn <laughs> hey. instead of listening to his counsel.
1: I told them all. I told them. he's arrogant. Dangerous. You can't get thrown out of the scissor without good reason. No one isn't right, right? So here we are. And what's he done? just Gregor could gains the combination. We never sanctioned this, this Spanish. I've won, they're gonna be best interested to have the beast destroyed.
0: He doesn't he doesn't notice that Cersei and Jamie and Gregor have entered the small council chamber, and he he literally he looks up and he sees Gregor and he literally farts in fear. <laughs> Delightful moment. And you know, despite the uh the embarrassment and presumably the stench in the room, Cersei and Jamie, they they persevere. They're there for a reason. Asking Kevin, what do you plan to do about this stuff in Dorn, Marcella's murder, or the coup? We've got a lot to discuss, all of us together. Seeing as you cannot make us leave, we best get on with it. And they're going for it. Give right. them credit. They're at least going for it. Elena, Kevin, Paisel, they're like, guys, we are just not interested in having this conversation with you. No, we cannot make you leave, and you cannot make us stay. Not unless you're going to have that thing murder us all. Hey, Hey, good idea. we'll table that for now. They all leave. They are not ready to take a leap of faith with people they despise.
1: Over a Marine where things are just barely holding together. Varys says to Vala, the murderer of White Rat, my dude. R.I.P. White Rat. R.I.P. White Rat. He says, I think it's important that you try and see things from my perspective, just as I will try to see things from yours. And he uses it as a setup to mention her son whom he'll leverage against her, threatening his safety if obliquely. But even so, the words speak to taking a leap. Learn to understand my position so that you can understand where I'm coming from and try at least to find the interests of yours that align with mine. And he says, you need to decide now. A new life for you and Dom, her son's name is Dom, like, and I just kept thinking, like, Dom Toretto, this is weird. <laughs> you need to decide now a new life for you and Dom. And he's asking her to take a leap of faith. But he's also, let's be honest, he's not he's not so much giving her a choice as he's giving her a choice between uh trusting him and watching her son die and herself probably die. But that works. And Varys goes to report to Tyrion, Greyworm and Miss that, aha, I have found out who is funding the Sons of the Harpy. And what like, what does funding mean, by the way? They get the masks like what is there like massive there's like helicopters Maybe they're getting something? those in like
0: bulk at party city hey, no man that, that shit's mean? made the of gold funding
1: the sons of the Harpy, the good masters of astapor and the wise masters of yunkai with help from their friends and volantis vera says and gray worm of course uh you know he's a soldier so every problem to him requires a spear he wants to go fight Tyrion, meanwhile is worried that the insullied leave to go defend another city marine will fall and by the way that's probably wise. Let's stay here, guys. The dragons are here. We're all here. Let's stay here. Missandei chimes in and says, the masters only speak one language. And she says, if we want them to hear us, we must speak it back to them. May it be the last thing they ever hear. And she's saying violence. This means war. Tyrion says he'll consider it, but he's not ready to take that leap yet. He asks if Varys' birds can get messengers to the three places. Let's try diplomacy for a little bit longer, guys.
0: Danny, she's not there. That's why Tyrion and Ferris and Gray Worm and Masandi right. are having these conversations in the first place. Danny is in Bastotrac with the Doge Colleen, and they're mocking Danny's yeah. continued leaps of faith. Her belief. You have made a mistake, Danny says, as they are literally ripping her clothing yeah. off, ripping her jewelry off, putting her in a, a like a simple rough spun tonic. You've made a mistake, one you will regret. I know who you are. They're like, girl, we're, we we uh, we're not yeah. we're not Cal Moro over there and his <laughs> idiot blood riders, Cal Moron more like. We know who you are. I remember you eating the stallion's heart. Why didn't you come to us after Kal Drogo died? And Danny, <laughs> just classic Danny hair, goes into full titles, yeah, titles, 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 titles mode. Titles, you're the damn Lists all of her titles, all of her achievements. My place is not here with you. Like she's flat out, like, I'm better, right. I'm better than, than this. I'm better than you guys. And they put her in her place in right. a hurry. You thought he would conquer the world with you at his side, the head crone says of Drogo. He didn't. And then she goes on to add, You're young. We were all young once. You will learn if you are fortunate enough to stay with us. Ah. So it's not even a guarantee right. that Danny will just it's be a imprisoned. Job it's a job interview. <laughs> she still needs. Basically, vote of confidence, and they tell Danny that her fate is in the Call's hands now. That kind of situation, leaving her fate up to other people, nope. not really Danny's style. Prepare for Danny to take another leap.
1: Gilly and Sam, their relationship, as all uh, loving, lasting relationships are on some level, it was a leap of faith. Right?
0: Took a lot for Sam to give Gilly that thimble. <laughs> It's it's a family heirloom.
1: Gilly had to believe in Sam's innate goodness and willingness to help her. And of course, she has like probably never met another man in her life. Well, I guess the Night's Watch guys that come by, but how often does that happen? Mm-hmm. She believed him in him when he couldn't even believe in himself. And Sam, despite his secret oath and numerous violent threats to him and Gilly, put her and little Sam at the very center of his life. And now they're taking a leap together on a ship bound for the South and a new life. And Gilly is so optimistic about the whole thing. It won't be long, she says. We'll be in the South soon. I'm excited to see Old Town. Captain says it's the most beautiful city in Westeros. Are you going to vomit again, Sam? And he says, (laughs) no, no, no. And then almost vomits. And then says, actually, you know what? Uh, Problem. The Citadel doesn't admit women. There won't be a place for you there or little Sam. And Gilly is not at all phased by this. Remember that she has faced uh, like existential obstacles just over the last few seasons since hooking up with Sam and she has already dealt with the no woman thing up at Castle Black. She said, I stayed at Castle Black. There's no women allowed there. Sam says, Citadel isn't Castle Black. I don't have Jon Snow or Maester Eamon to help me bend the rules. Gilly says, I'll stay in Old Town then. Sam, by yourself? With a baby and no money? So Sam is obviously the more realistic person in this relationship, but he's making a leap too. He's returning home. And he tells her this, we're going to my home. We're going to Horn Hill. My father's, well, my father's, but my mother's a kind woman and my sister's lovely. They'll take care of you both. Why is this a leap of faith? Remember, Sam was at the wall because his father threatened to murder him if he didn't renounce Horn Hill and leave. He didn't want uh, the great Valerian sword of the Tarleys to fall to this cowardly, pudgy son of his. And this is the place to where Sam is taking his beloved back to. Uh, Gilly says, wherever you go, I go
0: too. Hey, guys, just a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Livestream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. And now, back to Binge Mode. Aria. Yeah. Haven't gotten much out of Aria this season, but here she is, finally, taking a leap. The faceless men training for Arya thus far has mostly consisted of essentially janitorial work. You know, getting the shit kicked out of her by the way of going blind. Not a lot of fun. Very, very little killing. Still, she goes through with it. And the bother of pretending that she truly wants to be no one because she has faith that the outcome will be worth it. And the training has been a little rote and painful. But this exchange, there's a golden exchange here. Tell me about the hound. Also dead. Arya Stark left him to die. He was on her list. Slap. Anything with the hound here is so great. He was not on her list anymore. She had taken him off it. Why? Didn't she want him dead any longer? She did and she did not. She sounds confused. Yes, she was. Who else was on Arya Stark's funny little list? Cersei Lannister? Gregor Clegane? Walder Frey? That's a short list. That can't be everyone you want to kill. Are you sure you're not forgetting anyone? And this is just a great moment, because Arya is taking a leap of faith in this exchange with the Waif by basically not revealing that the Waif is on her list, that the right. Waif is someone she wants to kill. She's taken a little mini leap there by basically trusting in herself that she's gotten good enough at the Game right. of Faces to get that lie through. Right. And, you know, then Jockin comes in and he hands Arya the cup of well water. And in her time at the House of Black and White, she has seen and heard many people drink from, from this, this water basin and has seen and heard those people die. And Arya herself helped a sick girl drink this water and give her life. So what now? What does she do in this situation? Well, Jockin says, if a girl tells me her name, I will give her eyes back. Arya says a girl has no name. Jockin gives her this cup. Come. If a girl is truly no one, she has nothing to fear. Arya has to choose in that moment. Do you run? Do you give up on all of this, on all this training and this path to assassin level skills, the ability to seek the vengeance that you so desperately desire? Or do you take a leap of faith that could literally get you killed? That's what the stakes are in this moment. And it's not like she doesn't have reason to trust what these people can do to her. They just took away her eyesight. She's seen the carnage all around her. But she drinks and her sight returns. Over at the
1: Tower of Joy. Listen, we'll get much, 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 much more in depth on the tower in the season six finale. We'll lay the whole thing out. The mystery night, the tournament, the blue rose, the trident, the bed of blood, promise me Ned, all that shit. But for now, let's just talk about what we saw happen and the leap of faith that Ned and his compatriots took in order to take on two of the greatest fighters in the realm. Six versus two. That's the odds. Six on Lord Stark's side versus two Kingsguard. Those odds look pretty good on the face of it, except the men in question were... Gerald Hightower, the White Bull, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, among the most seasoned warriors in the Seven Kingdoms, and Sir Arthur Dane, the greatest of the knights who carried the title Sword in the Morning, wielder of the legendary Sword Dawn. Hightower's skills, and here it's worth mentioning, I think, that Hightower in the show is an amalgam of Oswell Went and Gerald Hightower from the books, because Gerald Hightower in the books was a pretty old dude, but still very robust, could still get it done. Hightower's skills were compared to those of peak Jamie Lannister. In fact, he was Hightower himself that pinned the white cloak to Sir Jamie's shoulders. His strength, as evidenced by the nickname White Bull, was unmatched. And Dane simply put, he's probably the greatest single warrior the Seven Kingdoms has ever produced. He's up there,
0: top three incredible like he's it's he's so fucking cool to get to see him on is. the show absolutely and like, watch him fight
1: everybody who can fight in this story that knew saw or lived contemporaneously with arthur dane they all say that guy was the best i ever saw and he carries dawn um the legendary sword of house dane forged thousands of years ago from a meteorite light sharp and hardy its properties are similar to that of valerian steel so six lords and knights against two Living fucking legends, and it says something about like what a leap of logic and reality and everything that this was. What a foolish test of faith in their own martial abilities that this fight was that no one in the story. None of the characters in the story that know about this fight really gets how Ned won. They're all like, how the fuck did this? No one knows how he won. All Ned says in the books and he says, mentions in the show, other characters mention this obliquely, is that uh, Ned says that Howland Reed saved his life. He never goes into detail and no one really understands how it went down. Similarly, the fact that Ned never told anyone how it happened that Howland Reed stabbed Sir Arthur in the back, saving Ned's life. Also speaks to what a leap this was. This was a foolish fight. And here again, we see Ned's secrecy. It's like he's more than willing to, to depict himself as the guy who beat Arthur Dane rather than admit that shamefully, Howland Reed stabbed Arthur Dane in the back right. after he beat all of us.
0: And Bran really struggles with yes. seeing that and learning that and coming to understand not only just the facts of what happened there, but of course that. His father wasn't honest with right. him, wasn't honest with the children. And Just learning this now, are you? <laughs> <laughs> we, we just have to talk for a minute or 20 about <laughs> how—language uh, uh, fails me. Like, how really chilling, good. how truly, like, transporting it was to finally— finally see this and it wasn't even it's it was not even the whole thing we don't even get yeah. the whole thing until the 10th episode but just to get a taste the action the way this set design yeah. you know where they are where they've chosen to stage this and film this the dialogue the dance of the sword play it is mesmerizing and right away Bran is he's the avatar for the audience right he is as shocked as anyone that's my father yeah the Three-Eyed Raven. Helpful here. That man beside him is Howland Reed, Mira's father. Brand sees Sir Arthur says, Sir Arthur, Dane? Sword of the morning. Father said he was the best swordsman he ever saw. And right away, you're like, wait a minute. How did this happen again? Right. How does Ned get out of this? And just watching Gerald Hightower polishing his sword, the confidence yeah. with which Dane and Hightower stride toward this group that outnumbers them. There's not a moment's hesitation. No. and the greeting from the instant that anyone opens a mouth here to speak, it is just magnetic. Dane says, Lord Stark. Ned says, I looked for you on the trident. This is when I thought it was my heart was going to yeah. explode out of my ribcage. Yeah. Truly, I, I was shaking at that point. I could barely breathe because this is what it's all about, guys. Yeah, and again, we're going to go much more into depth in 610. Please check back then about John's parentage and everything that this vision. Tells us about that, confirms, but very quickly, the fact that members of the Targaryen Kingsguard are at the tower guarding Lyanna is one of the most crucial pieces of information. Absolutely crucial. Charging the theories about what might be in there with Lyanna. We weren't there, they answer. Your friendly usurper would lie beneath the ground if we had been. Not an idle boast, right? Probably true. Those guys are fucking Those guys could get it done. The Mad King is dead. Ned says. Rhaegar lies beneath the ground. Why weren't you there to protect your prince? Great fucking question, yep. guys. Our prince wanted us here. <laughs> <laughs> Subtext, because whatever is in the tower is literally more right. important than Rhaegar's own life or than Ares' own life, at least in Rhaegar's mind. Ned looks up at the tower. Where's my sister? Okay, in case we needed any more dot da- connecting here, right. they just did it for us. Dane won't budge. This line, no matter how many times I read it, hear it, think about it, I will literally shiver. I wish you good fortune in the wars to come. That is his response. Where's my sister is such a pointed question, cuts so deeply to the heart of the matter that it's fightin' time right after that. I wish you good fortune in the wars to come. And now it begins. He pulls his blades. No, Ned says. Now it ends. Now, we have done our share of Ned Stark shit-talking here on Binge Mode. Yes, that's awesome. It is like No, now it ends when you're facing down the most right. fabled warrior. How much of that is like, I'm like an ignorant kid
1: who's been uh, fostering in the veil and I don't know shit? And how much of that is, yeah, I think I can take this guy.
0: I I'm not sure it's either. I think it's just. Resolve. Resolve. Yeah. And it's just, there's. You know, this is the one thing that Ned and Cersei have in common. Right. I'm here course. for my family. The madness of mercy. That's right. That's what led to Ned's downfall in season one, recognizing Cersei's love for yeah. her children and trying to respect that and honor that. Ned loves his family. And it le- that led to a lot of bad things for a lot of bad people. But in this moment, it steals him. And the fighting ensues. A lot of people die. Howlin takes an early wound. He's uh, yeah. seemingly out of the mix. And then when it's down to Ned and Dane, Bran says, this is a classic He's better than my father. Yeah. Well, yeah, dude.
1: Like, what? It's the sword of the morning,
0: bro. <laughs> the Three-Eyed Raven says, far better. It's just like, all right, we got it. Yeah. Now you're just being a dick. <laughs> but father beat him, Bran says. Did he? Yeah. The Three-Eyed it? Raven asks. And this is a cool moment because he's teaching Bran right. that not everything is how it appears. Also, again, can't really say this enough. Right. Ned was a liar.
1: Ned was a liar in a very, 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 very...
0: Secretly shady guy. <laughs> I know he did, Bran responds. I've heard the story a thousand times. Dane disarms Ned and it's looking bleak. And then Howland stabs Dane through the throat from behind. Bran, horrified by this, because this is not an honorable thing right. to do. He stabbed him in the back, he says. And then Ned finishes it. We hear a scream in the tower. Bran, What's in the tower? Again, acting as the audience avatar. And the three-eyed raven says, that's enough for today. We visit again another time. That's as much a promise to the the viewers as to Bran at that point. I want to see where he's going, Bran says. So do we. Time to go. Ned starts to run up the stairs of the tower. And Bran calls out, father. Ned stops and looks back. This This is, is, like, just amazing. Bran is so powerful. The three-eyed raven pulls him out. Why did you do that? Take me back there. I want to go back. No, he heard me. Maybe, maybe he heard the wind. Well, remember guys, when way back, Osha talking to Bran about the gods, the old gods there in front of the werewood tree, Bran says, it's just the wind. Who do you think sends the wind? Uh, this language the words they're using this is intentional the show is drawing these bridges for us these connections to the way people have spoken about the werewoods the gods before Three-Eyed raven says the past is already written the ink is dry yeah. is, is it though is it? there are a couple possibilities here yeah. either bran is so powerful right. that now this would obviously be a much more massive scale the implications here are bigger but much like you know the way the jojen and Miran Osha reacted to seeing Bran warg yeah, into Hodor. Whoa. whoa, nobody can do that anywhere. Right. Maybe Bran is so powerful that he can tap into the Tree in a way that no one else has been able to before, and actually impact what he's seeing there. Or maybe that's always been the case. Right. And maybe all of this has happened before, and all of this will happen again. You know, that's that's for you, Battlestar heads. <laughs> and. Maybe the Three-Eyed Raven is letting Bran make the mistakes that he has to make in order to fulfill his destiny and set a certain course of events in motion. The Three-Eyed Raven asks Bran to take a leap of faith by continuing to commit to his studies. You know, what's in the tower? I want to go back. I've told you many times, stay too long where you don't belong and you will never return. Why do I want to return? So I can be a cripple again? So I can talk to an old man in a tree? You think I wanted to sit here for a thousand years yeah. watching the world from a distance as the roots grew through me? So why did you? I was waiting for you. Wow. You won't be here forever. You won't be an old man in a tree. But before you leave, you must learn. He, he knows, right? Yeah. A lot of people ask why, spoiler alert here a few episodes down the road, why didn't the three-eyed even tell Bran not to let the Knights King touch him? Well, maybe he wanted Bran to let the Knights King touch him. Maybe he knew that that needed to happen, that the White Walkers had to infiltrate the cave, set in a certain series of events that would bring on the Great War, because the war can't conclude if it doesn't properly begin. Right. Learn what, Bran says. Everything. Oh, no big deal. Right. <laughs> literally everything. Jason? Yes? To be determined whether... Bran's fate is prophesied. Mm, we will talk
1: about this a lot, I feel like, in we will. only two episodes.
0: We will. Prophecy
1: plays yes. an important
0: role in this show, Quake. plays an important role in binge mode, and Stannis, not the prince that was promised. Turned out no, actually. Tough break for Mel there, but she'll be the first to tell you. Someone has to be. Just ask her. We're better yet. Assemble the conclave. Yes. Head to the citadel. Teach us everything we need to know about the prince that was promised. And in light of the Tower of Joy vision and the renewed interest in Jon's parentage, tell us about Rhaegar's belief in prophecy.
1: The prince that was promised. Rhaegar. Okay, so the prince that was promised is a mythic figure, possibly legendary. Messianic in nature, whose tale is known throughout the known world. He's a hero who, if the prophecy or prophecies are correct, will deliver the world from an unspecified darkness and evil. I say prophecies because the broad outlines of the story of the prince that was promised, chosen hero, born to save the world from evil, are very similar to several other prophecies that exist within the world. There's the legend of Azor Ahai, a favorite of Lady Melisandre and followers of Valor, which tells of a great hero bearing the magic sword, Lightbringer. This was who Stannis styled himself as, at Melisandre's advice, who is born again amidst salt and smoke. Remember the ham comment from Renly. And along the way, Azor forges his sword over like a hundred days or something like that. He slays a lion in an attempt to temper the steel, before finally figuring out how to temper it by driving it into the heart of his wife, Nisa, 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 Misa. Uh, and it is said that this champion would appear at the end of a very long summer when the cold and dark threatened the world. Azor and the prince that was promised are often used interchangeably, so I think it's fair to say that they are uh, part of the same legend, perhaps just adapted for different parts of the world. Then there's the last hero, this legendary first-man figure is a staple of northern folktales, and he is said to have traveled during the dark heart of the long night to the far north in search of the children of the forest. One by one, this hero's friends died or abandoned him on his journey. Finally, quote, and this is, this is bad, but I got to no. put it out there. <laughs> Finally, quote, even his
0: dog. No.
1: Passes away.
0: Oh, no, did. But he, <laughs> protect I uh, protect
1: him. I'm just putting that out there. Oh, God. He finally does manage to uh, contact the children, gaining their assistance, and the White Walkers, obviously, were beaten back. So, many pieces of these prophecies seem applicable to our recently dead but now alive boy, Johnny Snow. Indeed. What's interesting about the prince that was promised, though, beyond the question of who, if anyone, this person might be, is that spoiler – John's dad, spoiler, Rhaegar Targaryen, spoiler, was obsessed with this prophecy, even believing for a time that he, in fact, might be the prince in question. He was all
0: like, I guess I got to go become a warrior now. Yeah, I guess
1: I got to learn how to fight because I'm just interested in like art and music and stuff. But now I got to fight because that's what the prince that was promised did. So there are two crucial elements to the prince that was promised legend. One. The hero's coming is heralded by, quote, a bleeding star. This, Rhaegar believed, refers to a comet. Now, we saw a comet, a great red gouge streaking across the sky in season two. Book two, similarly, is dominated by a comet that streaks across the world and the different interpretations that people have of this event. Rhaegar, in fact, saw one himself above King's Landing when his son Aegon was born. This signified, a Rhaegar believed, that His son, Aegon, would actually be the prince. Now, in the book version of the House of the Undying, she sees her big brother, Rhaegar, in a vision. And remember, the House of the Undying, Piat Pri, who stole her dragons in Karth. Aegon, this vision of Rhaegar, says to a woman who's clearly Elia Martell, what better name for a king, he says. And she says, will you make a song for him? He has a song. He is the prince that was promised, and his is the song of ice and fire. Chills. Chills. Then Rhaegar seems to see Danny. Looking at him across time and he says, there must be one more the dragon has three heads. What this means, who the three heads are, has been up for much, 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 much vigorous debate in the Song of Ice and Fire community for many, many years. Who these heads are, we don't know at this particular time. Rhaegar soon after his son Aegon was born, was killed on the trident by Robert Baratheon with his hammer. Gods. not Aegon <laughs> died at the hands of the mountain. Maybe. We don't know. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. Griff. Young, uh, young Griff. I, young I Griff where you at? Aegon. Uh, yeah, he maybe's that. Then now this was during the Crimson Horror of the Sack of King's Landing, and he died along with his sister and mother Elia. Now, clearly, Aegon was not the Princess of the Promise. Clearly, Rhaegar was not either. But it would be an extremely George R.R. R. Martin twist for Rhaegar to be both right and wrong about this prophecy. That's how so many of these prophecies work. People interpret them and they almost get them right, and that leads them to a decision that is tragically wrong. So what if Rhaegar was both right and wrong, that his son is the hero of destiny, but it's just not the son he thinks? The other detail is uh, that the hero would be reborn amidst salt and smoke, and just like the three heads of the dragon, much thought and theorizing both in the real world, Warren's Reddit, on the forums, on Twitter, everywhere, and in the fictional reality of our story, has gone into figuring out what... The salted smoker first, to. Renley, of course, quipped that sounded like the process of making hams. Now see a ham? Is he a ham? Meister Aemon put a lot of thought into this as well in the books. He knew Rhaegar, and he wondered if he was the prince who was promised as well. Perhaps he thought The smoke was referred to the fire at Summerhall, this unspecified tragedy which killed his brother Aegon and and many others and destroyed the famous Targaryen vacation castle. And perhaps the salt was the, the briny tears shed by those who lost loved ones in this tragedy. Later, though, much, much later, Aemon came to think that the stumbling block to deciphering this prophecy was one of translation. And this, again, if it is in fact true, is a very... George R. 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 Martin trope. Think of the Valencar ah, translation. As Aemon saw it, the prince could be either male or female because the gender of dragons are fluid. And of course, Danny emerged from smoke, Drogo's funeral pyre, christened by salty tears of Miri as She cried in her death throes and she emerged from that with three dragons clinging to her breast. So what does this mean? Who's the prince that was promised? We don't know, but I love this prophecy. I love it. It's such a great part of this story.
0: One of my, like, two or three favorite things to talk about yeah. in the entire story. A couple follow-ups. That was, that was masterful. Thank you. Even by your unimpeachable standards. Gosh, thank you. The point you made about Rhaegar maybe being right and wrong. Right. That maybe his son is the hero of destiny, but just not the son he thinks. Well, or maybe he did think that it was right. John, and that's why— At the very end, perhaps he did. Hedge your bets. That's right. Protect The other one, why on earth are Gerald Hightower and Arthur Dane, Two of the most capable men in the realm. Certainly people who would have helped Rhaegar on the trident. You'd want them next to you, certainly. absolutely would. Or you'd want them in King's Landing guarding your father. They're guarding a teenage girl in a tower. Why? Perhaps because she's carrying not only your child, but a child that you believe is the son of prophecy. Right. I have one more point that I want to make, but first I want to ask you who you think the prophecy is about. Man. Are you team John? Are you team Danny? Are you team I, no one? I'm so torn Yeah, because I just feel like
1: the way that George writes prophecies and the way prophecies always work in this story is it's never quite what you think. It's never cut and dried. I, I feel like it's John, but where does the salt and smoke come in? I, it's, it's tough. I feel like it has to be John because simply we're talking about the Song of Ice and Fire, right? Ice, the Starks from the snowy north, fire, the Targaryens, the mingling of their bloodlines. Jon Snow, the Song of Ice and Fire. I feel like it's gotta be him, but I'm not it's not I'm nowhere near certain. I'm not hundred percent, but I feel like it's him.
0: Tyrion has that great quote in the books. He's saying to Jorah, Prophecy is like a half trained mule. It right. looks as though it might be useful, but the moment you trust in it, it kicks you in the head. <laughs> it's so great. Supporting the point that you've been making here. For a long, long time, reading the books, watching the show, I was Team Danny mm-hmm. here for a really long time. Just it seemed that the letter, the letter, the letter, word for word, the interpretation just fits her yes. better than anyone else. It's also much like Valentine's and right. the translation issue. Exactly. A very Georgian idea that so you can flip the right. gender right. of the gendered nature of the term prince on its head like that. I have shifted pretty heavily into the John camp and really believe that this is John's story more than anyone else's. But a couple things to, to consider here mm-hmm. one, the math aspect. Yeah. Another George idea is to sort of give you part of it, but not all of it. Right. Certain things being true, but not all of it being true, as you were saying right. earlier. And what if it isn't just a prince or right. a princess? What if it's more than one person? John himself can be the Song of Ice and Fire, but Danny and John can be the Song of Ice and Fire together. And if it's two of them, hey, could it be three? Is that potentially where the dragon has three heads comes into play? Maybe it's John, Danny, and TBD who fits that best. Some people have made a case that it could be Tyrion. Certainly the case that you made in the last episode of yeah. Binge Mode about his parentage would support that kind of connection. The math of Song of Ice and Fire would argue for two. The math of the dragon has three heads would argue for three. I'm not sure we're looking at one, but last point I'll make here. Your comment about Rhaegar really thinking this was him right. is so interesting to me it's because he died in spectacular fashion and right. not in a way that just cost him his life his entire family was right. in ruins in a way because of the arrogance that was fueling his life either i'm the son of prophecy right, or, my or my son is right. okay dude yes. and george who are the who are the rulers who succeed in george's story the the reluctant ones right. the rulers who don't want the power this is why people like Cersei are going to fail. Why there's no way she makes it out of this story alive. This is why John continues to earn respect and continues to thrive. And this is where I really worry about Danny. Yeah. Because Danny is touting titles, titles, titles. Titles, Like, right. My dreams are different. My dreams come true. She really believes her own hype in a way that John never has and never will. And that makes him better suited to carry the mantle than Danny could ever be in George's world. Plenty more on that in ensuing episodes of Binge Mode. In a special five-part episode of Binge Mode. All right, Maester. Yeah. Hold off. on burning my body for now. Okay. We still have to head to the Sept to bathe in the light of the Seven by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from this episode. And just to clarify, we mean other than the 50 we've already talked about (laughs) and said that we love.
1: You go first. Uh, Your body might need burning, actually, right now. Number one, (laughs) where did great John Umber go? Where did this guy go? He was not at the Red Wedding. And then his son says, small John, who's pretty big on his own, says, uh, I would have killed him had he not something to the effect of died on his own, leading us to believe that great John Umber just died. T-L-D-R translation uh, they couldn't get this actor again for whatever reason
0: basically on the show just kind of subbed him in for a car star in terms of like senior leaders kind of challenging Rob right and that was it that's it weird number two so, why didn't they send Danny Great to baseball in a good season question. one? Like, they're all like, yeah, you should have come here after Drogo died. And it's like, well, hey, uh, yeah, no one you- mentioned it. You know, no one brought it up. No one made me go. No one asked me to go. No one told me to go. Is it just as simple as the fact that when Danny engaged with blood magic, when she empowered yeah. the Magi? Everyone fled and they didn't want anything to do with her. Yeah, I really think that's it. Certainly didn't want her in their sacred city.
1: I think it's really that simple. And also, uh, remember, Jorah has spent a lot of time with the Dothraki. He can speak their language. He knew what a dangerous and fraught situation it is because, you know, as we've said before, the Dothraki don't have a lot of rules. But one of the rules they have is they don't fuck with witches and blood magic. And Danny was like, hey, let's sick this blood witch on, on Khal Drogo. And so it was a very dangerous time for her. Number three, Tyrion, when Varys finally returns. Oh, you took your time. Incredible delivery, as always, on that line, and it really shows how painful uh, the last few minutes have been. What should we do to pass the time? This is when they're having their famous uh, drinking uh, scene. What should we do to pass the time? What should we talk about? You speak 19 languages, says Miss Andy. You must occasionally use them to talk about things. And then he says again, "A wise man once said that the true history of the world is the history of great conversations in elegant rooms." Which sounds like uh, the fucking header of Cigar Magazine or some shit, some (laughs) bullshit. And Miss Sandy says, "Who said this? Me, just now." And then you know Graham's like, "We do not drink
0: until you do." Brutal. It's a it's a highly entertaining scene, but also it's like, guys, what are we doing? Let's get to the good stuff here. Number four. Things have gotten very, very bad, very bleak for House Tyrell. But let us never forget that Lady Olenna earned the name Queen of Thorns for a reason. When Cersei asks why Olenna is in the small council chamber, Olenna replies by saying, Margaery is queen. You are not the queen because you are not married to the king. I do appreciate that these (laughs) things can get a bit confusing in your family. Boom! Amazing. What a woman. Number
1: five. So Mace is just like back in King's Landing, totally with absolute zero shits to give about the fact that (laughs) Meryn Trant was like brutally murdered in a fucking brothel with his eyes torn out. So crazy to me. He's
0: just (laughs) calmly sitting at the table. Uh,
1: He was a member of the Kingsguard, Mace, and you have nothing to say about this? My my very Uh, own Kingsguard. In Planky Town.
0: (laughs) Where's Meryn? Oh, I don't know. Number six, we discussed Arya and the Waif and their their game earlier, and the Hound. And here's another little snippet of that conversation. She had one sister and four brothers. Yeah, Arya says, "Slap!" And there's this moment of bliss and euphoria yeah. as you're watching that, where your brain just explodes. Like, and you go, yeah. "Is that because Jon is a half brother, or because he's not a brother yeah. at?" Oh, and then she corrects herself and says three brothers, Rob, Bran, Rickon, and a half brother, John. And then that doesn't get a slap. So it's a little bit like, mwah, mwah. but maybe that's just a good enough lie because yeah. it's what Arya actually believes right. to slide through.
1: Number seven, Shireen. Oh, Shireen, I miss you. Your true legacy was what? Teaching a wildling to read and learn about homonyms. Gilly is talking about the sea and she's telling Sam how she thought the sea was called the sea because you look out and you see it. C-S-E-A-N-C-S-E-E. It was before I learned how to read, obviously. (laughs) Gilly says,
0: so great. Gilly, what
1: a sharp tack she is. Love her. Love her. Mal, traditionally a bannerman kneels before his lord, but if you don't want to kneel before this episode's champion, we don't blame you. Each episode, we're going to honor the person who played the game and advance his or her cause in some tangible way, and this week, the winner of our champion's purse is... (laughs) Ramsey Bolton. Bill! Why? 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 Because he's really gone quite a ways to solidifying his hold or his version of a hold on the North. Sure, it only involves the four strongest houses, but you know, it's working for now. Small John Umber shows up and Ramsey's welcoming. The Umber's a famously loyal house, he says, and his new bestie, Karstark, obviously strangely on edge, famously loyal to the Starks. Ah, but Small John's ready for this. And you, Lord Karstark, your people share blood with the Starks, don't they? But here we are. Times change. This is a generational revolution in a sense. Ramsay notes that when Roose became Warden of the North, the Umbers refused to pledge their banners. Your father was a cunt, (laughs) John says. My beloved father, the warden, your father was a cunt and that's why you killed him. I might have done the same to my father if he hadn't died on his own. So I guess he just, that's a weird one, by the way. I will never get over the great John dying off screen. It's like X-Men 3 when Cyclops dies off screen. <laughs> it's terrible. Ramsey asks Umber why he's here, and he says, John let the wildlings to the wall. The Umbers, by the way, are the furthest, uh, of the furthest north of the northern houses, and so they're always having to fight the wildlings first. I like fighting wildlings, but doing it all my life, but there are too many of them to do it alone. And Ramsey's like, hey, you need help? Guess what? Umber says, they need to help each other. The wildlings will march south soon. And Karstark is talking about a horde of wildlings and do you think you can't fight them? And Umber says, if they have Jon Snow leading them, maybe, maybe they could take Winterfell. He knows this place better than we ever will. Yes, that's absolutely true. And Ramsay is like, okay, guys, let's pledge your banner, swear loyalty, and we will fight together to destroy the bastard and all his wildling friends. And here Umber is like as badass as a piece of shit human being can be where he's just basically like, I'm not going to. Honor tradition. I'm not going to kneel. I'm not going to do any of this shit. Guess what I got for you? The heir to Winterfell, Rickon Stark, his wildling friend Osha, who's been leading him around, and uh, let's just prove it. Aww. Shaggy dog's head. Aww.
0: Shaggy <laughs> deserves so much. better Shaggy than that. deserved that's heartbreaking. A
1: lot, lot, lot better. Rickon deserved a lot better too.
0: Did he? Uh, yeah, you know, I think <laughs> I think
1: Rickon was like the Stark's Mad King. That's for another day. Anyway, so yeah, Ramsay. He's uh, taken several steps to solidifying the North. The opposition to him is in no way organized, and he can prove that he has stamped out the line of the Starks now. Can't applaud him, but, you know, he did win the episode.
0: All right, guys. A wise man once said that the true history of the world is the history of great conversations and elegant podcast studios. (laughs) Who said this? Me me just now. All right. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today and that you will join us again next time when we will be discussing Season 6, Episode 4, Book of the Stranger. Till then, remember. I'm not a god. I know that. I saw your pecker. (laughs) What kind of god would have a pecker that small? The god of
1: cold. I looked at your stab wounds and I followed them down and the trailed the happy trail down from your belly button down to your little tiny little thumb tip of a pecker. And so I know you are not God.